Amen. Would y'all join me in response to this song and all this music, dedicating this music and this worship to the praise of the Lord our God. Join me now as we pray together. God of salvation, love and victory, it is your name and your power and your grace which is sufficient for us to cleanse us of all our misgivings and to fill us with life, your spirit, that we may become united to you. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And that everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that Jesus will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that you give, Lord, will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. In this season of Lent, we come before you thirsty. We long to live tied to the knowledge of your sacrifice for us, Lord, that in our giving up of our earthly things, we may learn to thirst for you. For we know only you can provide and truly fill. In our deepest sadnesses, in our hunger for justice, and answers and mercy in our greatest hours of need we look to you for reorientation you see us you hear us you are right here alongside us and you offer freely the grace that deems us loved in your sight as we thirst for you fill us with your living water we pray that our hearts and minds be transformed that our hearts may be tuned to sing thy grace, that your word may continue to dwell among us, and that through us your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, that all whose souls thirst for you, who alongside us lift their hands in praise and call upon your name, may come to the waters, come to the wells, and be filled. We are so grateful for your goodness, the gift of your Son, and the power of your Spirit, who enrich us and dwell with us always. With you through your eternal life, may we seek and find that in you we may never thirst again for anything but you. Amen. We read many times in the Bible that people were given new names to signify that something special had happened in their lives. In Isaiah, we read of the Israelites, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. In Revelation, we hear, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Again in Revelation, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name.
because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. There is a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yes, it's If you open your Bibles now to John chapter 4, we're going to be reading an excerpt of a much longer encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. We'll be reading verses uh, 4 through 14. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 14. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, as you probably have noticed by now, Danny is a fan of Mr. Rogers. And there are uh, other theologians who choose other familiar childhood favorites because the childlikeness, not the childishness, of those encounters with deep thoughts in our childhood continue to resonate into our adulthood and continue to speak truth into our lives. Eugene Peterson often looks to Winnie the Pooh for the exact same reason. And a couple of years ago, uh, when he was writing about the spiritual quest so many are on in America, he goes back to a Winnie the Pooh story. And he tells a story there in the Hundred Acre Wood where Christopher Robin and company decide to set out one day to find the North Pole, a very audacious adventure indeed. And at one point along the way, young Rue falls into a stream and needs to be rescued. And Pooh Bear eventually uses a long pole to reach in and fish him out of the water. And once that emergency passed, the animals kind of stand around and debrief and discuss what just happened here. And as they're talking, Christopher Robin notices that Pooh is standing there with the rescue pole still in his paw. Pooh, he says, where did you get that pole? I just found it earlier, Pooh replies. I thought it might be useful. Pooh, said Christopher Robin, very excitedly, the expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. Oh, says Pooh, I did? Eventually, Christopher Robin sinks the pole into the ground, and they hang a flag on it with this message, the North Pole. Pole discovered by Pooh. Pooh found it. And then they all go home again, very satisfied that the quest to find the North Pole was successful. And what Peterson tells us through this story is that many, if not most of us, are in search of something like that. Something quite grand, something quite sustaining, something quite fulfilling, so grandly satisfying we can give up our search any longer. And like Christopher Robin and that group of cute little stuffed creatures, 
they seem quite willing to label the first thing they find as being it. And it is it until they find the next thing. How many books have been written about spirituality and somehow peddling spiritual advice? Some have been bestsellers. Some have had an impact on you. But the fact that they're bestsellers tells me that a lot of folks continue to be on that quest. Sometimes we think that in this age where technology seems to be leading the way for so many of us that people have given up or no longer sense a deep need for spiritual sustenance, and that simply isn't true. Now, technology has just sort of multiplied the voices, the ideas, and all the rest that may somehow enter into our ears and into our hearts. It costs nothing, virtually, to buy a domain name or to set up a web presence. Uh, and you don't have to go through all the rigors of publishing, <laughs> uh, you know, some, someone to proofread, someone to hold you accountable to academic standards or any of the rest. And while the democratization of thought that the internet provides, I think, is a very good thing in some ways, the fact that there are no real filters, there are no real structures, there's nothing to hold authors or thinkable, thinkers accountable for the work that they put out there holds us all in some level of vulnerability. Because if you bring a very thirsty spirit to your Google search, you'd be amazed what you're going to try. But very deeply, I think one thing that it tells us is that the spiritual pole that we confidently label as our North Pole six months ago, it might change again we might discover that it's not the end destination. And instead, we set out on another expedition. We go to the bookstore. We go back to our Google search. We, we do all sorts of things, and we find different answers. And I don't think this is because people are fickle, that we are. It's because people are thirsty, spiritually thirsty. And even more, it tells us that much of what we encounter here simply does not last. It does not sustain. And so here we are this week, right now in the middle of what this story is all about. It takes place around Jacob's well. And without spending too much time, I just want to remind you that in Genesis chapter 29, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, encounters the woman who would become his wife, who would become a matriarch, Rachel. She's a shepherdess, or a shepherd. He meets her at a well at all times of noonday. And now we are gathered around a well that bears his name. And that sort of enduring encounter that's symbolized in the marriage in Genesis 29 is now at the forefront of our reading today. Today around Jacob's well, Jesus offers living water. It's water of such significance. It's water that promises that those who drink it will never be thirsty again. And that's the core of this story. If you leave with nothing else in your mind, it would be that. That Jesus offers this living water. But we don't need to ponder it abstractly. The story's details help us, I think, to see 
what the significance of this living water really means. The story that we read today in chapter 4, in many ways, is a parallel and a contrast to what we read last week. The story in John chapter 3 of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, of course, was a person of notoriety, is a person of social standing. We know his name. There are all sorts of things that privilege Nicodemus in front of our reading eyes. This woman is a Samaritan. She is a woman. She is nameless. And while Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night, she is doing something quite similar, hiding out from people in the middle of the day. They're both, in a sense, hiding as they encounter Jesus. But it tells us that they also know that they need something. They need this new life that only Jesus can give. And while Nicodemus is at the top of the religious heap, and this woman, in many ways, is at the bottom, Jesus provides presence, response, ministry, and salvation to both. Everybody needs it, no matter where we might place their lives on any sort of social spectrum. Now, the last similarity in many ways that Danny pointed out today in these two stories is that both Nicodemus and the woman are initially confused by what it is that they hear from Jesus. In the case of this woman, there are already a lot of things going on, I think, in her senses that day. She's at a well, it's the heat of the day, and at eight or so pounds per gallon of water, she had to look forward to a really difficult walk back to her home or back to her flocks. I'll never forget the, the image in Haiti of seeing the women of the village with this incredible strength and capacity for balance, carrying water, sometimes furniture, just an amazing array of balance, um, carrying everything they had back with them. That was their lot in life to take care of the entire household. And you don't want to go out to the well multiple times a day for washing, for cleaning, for eating, for drinking, for all of the rest. And so she was mobilizing for what lies ahead. Most folks would go in the early morning or they would go in the evening. Noontime is just too hot for work like that. And more socially, we can imagine that at a well like this, it would be like any water cooler or that it would be like any coffee shop or any bar after work or something like that, that this is a place to gather. And those who were in a similar situation would gather and be able to talk and share. They're literally around the watering hole. And among women, we might assume that this was an important social contract. I'll see you at the well. And I think it's very telling that she has no companions. She does have husbands at least five of them. But as, as Danny again helped us understand, we ought to suppress our over-moralizing that circumstance she's in. We don't know why she has had five husbands. What we do know is in that culture, women had no say over their marriage. Go back to Genesis chapter 29, and you see that it was Rachel's father, Laban, who, quote, gives Rachel in marriage to Jacob. And in a similar 
culture of arranged marriage, of marriage by law and necessity, not out of love. A man simply could divorce if he met certain criteria and spoke it out. She had no agency in the choices to be married or not married. It is just as likely that she had gone through multiple marriages with men who had died. No matter what, even the durable institution of marriage, which gives us so much satisfaction and sustainability and connection, for her is fleeting, elusive, and tenuous. And the man she has now is not even her husband. So we don't know the circumstances, but we know the facts. We know that she, in many ways, has no companions, though she's had many husbands. But we also know that she was not a religiously ignorant person. This is a woman who knows theology. If you read the story on, you'll find that she is deeply engaged and concerned with spiritual matters. She's aware that a Messiah has been promised. She knows that there's something of a controversy between Samaritans and Jews. She knows where the Samaritans and Jews choose to worship God, and she is willing to engage in a conversation like that. From the outside looking in, this is a person who, even though she is lacking in community, she has not abandoned that project to embrace God, to seek God, to imbibe God, to receive God. She's not given up on God, even though the people of her town and the people of her community seem largely to have left her in the cold, or in this case, in the heat. But in some ways we're getting ahead of ourselves because before any of that is really evident here in the story, this woman first has to overcome the shock of encountering Jesus at all. Ted is exactly right. Most Jews would have gladly written in a couple extra hours, a couple extra days, a couple extra miles of travel simply to avoid the region, but with sparing language, John tells us Jesus had to go. He did not choose to avoid those that in his culture they were taught to avoid. Jesus could have opted out, but instead he cut straight through Samaria. And there in the heat by this well, he asks this woman for some water. He asks, he does not demand. And the woman, concerned for his reputation, says, you're a Jew. You're not supposed to talk to me. Jesus is breaking convention. He's engaging this woman. And, and if you read on, his disciples are really flummoxed by this. But he's not dissuaded. Instead, Jesus speaks these words of life to her, and he uses the well as an occasion to introduce this very memorable image of what it is he's offering, living water that springs up from within, that bubble up into eternity. And she's ready to receive it. She doesn't know how, but she's ready to receive it. And Jesus, just a little later, after where we finished reading today, says, okay, well, let's get your husband in on this too. Jesus does not say this, I think, to shame her. He does not say it in some way to condemn her. Instead, as he speaks into her life about the facts of her life, 
there are two primary reasons. The first is that it is a reminder in the starkest possible terms that what we think sustains us, truly sustains us and satisfies us on earth, rarely does, if ever. And it is a demonstration of how Jesus knows us. And knowing us as we are, he approaches us as we are. Now, she eventually catches on to what Jesus is saying. And unlike Nicodemus, she responds with enthusiasm. She races back to the village. She begins knocking on the doors, the doorsteps that people who she hasn't talked to in years, that they're opening the door saying, what are you doing here? And somehow she forgot she was supposed to avoid these people. And instead, she goes and she gathers the community. And before we know it, she's a member of that community again. And before the story is finished, if you read it all the way through, you see the villagers are actually speaking to her again. And they're speaking gratefully to her at that. And so this woman achieves a certain kind of clarity. The disciples remain very confused. They remain very perplexed. They're very distressed by a lot of this. They don't understand why Jesus would talk to the Samaritan woman. And just a little later in verses 31 and 32, they try and give Jesus a little bit to eat, some lunch. You must be hungry, they said. He says, no, I have food you don't know about. And the only thing they can think is that somebody else has beaten them to the punch and brought takeout to him before they did. But Jesus explains to them in verses 34 through 38 what all this means for a disciple. My Food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps. It's true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. There is work for the disciples to do. There's a spiritual harvest to gather in. And the disciples' problem, says Jesus, is they cannot perceive it. They saw Samaria as a place they could pass by as quickly as possible, pass through without making too many connections. It never occurred to him that there were candidates to know Jesus and experience the joy of salvation right there. They had spent their whole lives learning how to bracket out certain people like Samaritans, how to write them off, to leave them for someone else. And Jesus has a very different point of view. If this woman is worth engaging with the good news, then it's opened up a whole field of potential gospel receivers. It's opened up to pretty much everyone. And so as I suggested to you at the beginning, people everywhere are looking. They're thirsty. They're searching. And they're drinking from a lot of different sources. And as a church for us today, it is, again, to offer the pure and distilled and unpolluted water of a living gospel through Jesus Christ. And we need to offer it without distinction. Maybe we could discipline ourselves by offering it first to those we've been taught subtly 
or explicitly even to ignore. You know, when C.S. Lewis reflected on World War II, one of the comments that he made was that during peace and in prosperity, only wise people seem to know that we live our lives on the edge of a precipice. But during times of war and terror, like the Second World War, he was commenting on everyone is painfully aware. And I wonder what sort of time we're in spiritually. Can we perceive the people who are thirsty calling out for something to quench their thirst? As a church, we have a living and lasting and eternal water. We should not be shy about offering it. It changes lives. It changed the life of this woman at Sychar. Through her, it changed the entire life of a village. And if we were going to make some sort of movie, kind of a short interpretation of this story for the modern day, I wonder how we'd end it. I think I know how I would end it. And it's embedded in a little detail in verse 28. If you still have your Bibles open, find chapter 4. Look at verse 28. I'll give us the on-ramp with verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Can you imagine the hustle and bustle of the town as she's running and talking, the disciples scratching their head, Jesus looking on, and as the camera pans out or maybe in to that well, that ancient well where covenants are made, there's a jar left behind, no longer necessary to sustain this woman's eternal life. To encounter Jesus is to find that life. It's a stream of living water, says Jesus. It wells up in us. It's a stream of water that over time begins to overflow. It becomes a mighty wave that finally cleanses the whole world. It changes. It makes all things new. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. If we will receive it, and as we share it. Amen.